Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Letson. Hello, Sharice. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you, too. You know, this is the second uh, the second time we've recorded uh, an intro for the podcast, and in both days, it's been really sunny, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a good Me mood. Me too. Me yeah. too. And as I was saying before we hit record, I had like a super productive morning, which, you know, are sometimes hard to come by these days since, you know, we're all not kind of leaving our homes and all that. So I'm going to take the win. Definitely. And I, I was, again, out at lunch, uh, shooting hoops, riding riding bikes, and uh, the sun was shining, and even my two squabbling kids couldn't throw my mood off, so I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> That's awesome. I still, I, I promise one day before this is over, I'll come over and stand at a safe distance and shoot some hoops. <laughs> Definitely. I got, I got to see your jump shot. <laughs> it's going to be bad. <sighs> I also had a great conversation, which uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, listen to it in, in a few minutes with uh, Durandra Shukla and, and Lisa Rablick. So that's also put me right. In so, so there are guests for this week's episode. Um, what did you talk to them about? Well, because we, we talked to uh, to uh, David Alston and Marcel Lebrun in, on the last episode about uh, the dance and and reopening the. Uh, New Brunswick's economy and and society as we start to work our way out of, of out of this coronavirus crisis. And uh, since we had that chat, the province has now started to open up uh, very slowly, loosening restrictions on us getting together. And and we'll start seeing the, the economy start to open up again in the next uh, several weeks. Um, I thought it was a good opportunity to follow up that conversation with a conversation with uh, with Lisa and Dorindra, and uh, they've. They've last fall they launched something called the uh, the Center for Deep Change, and it, it's before we um, chat quickly about that, Sharice, It's probably worth you know talking about Lisa and Jarendra for for a minute first. And both you and I know yes. them uh, both very well. Uh, Lisa Rablick uh, is is a longtime journalist and and writer in the province, and uh, you know started with the Telegraph Journal and. Uh, and has since left to become an independent journalist, uh, an entrepreneur, and and a writer, and you know one of the leading thinkers, quite honestly, in the province on social and economic change. And she's done quite a bit of work uh, with the university, uh, which is how she connected with uh, Durendra, who is, I mean, how talking about Durendra is like talking about Lisa. They, he wears many hats too. He's he's a professor at UNB. He's uh, an entrepreneur himself, uh, you know, both as an, inve- and as an investor in startups in the province through Energia Ventures, uh, but also through companies he's founded like Grey Wolf in the province. And I know, Sharice, uh, you're also like really familiar with both of them. Oh, absolutely. People. So setting the stage for this conversation, uh, the Center for Deep Change is something that actually uh, was launched last fall, last October. And the idea around the Center for Deep Change is to facilitate like a, a public conversation, um, you know, outside of its host at the university, but outside of the university's um, walls about the kind of social and economic change that, that needs to happen in a province, you know, like, like New Brunswick, um, that has been grappling with a lot of challenges around, you know, population decline and aging population, you know, difficulty supporting its healthcare system, um, growing the economy. And a lot of these conversations over the last, you know, couple decades, you know, sometimes have 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 been quite, been negative, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, and uh, and things like the Center for Deep Change are really about, 
you know, taking a look at, at the, you know, the province's core values, um, how the people of the province can get involved in making, you know, the province, uh, you know, a more vibrant place, uh, a more entrepreneurial place, a more participatory place in terms of engaging in public conversations about the economy and, and society and democracy. So in the spirit of that, um, they, they started this center uh, at the university and the, the COVID-19 crisis, you know, which we'll get into in the interview has really presented an opportunity uh, for, for Lisa and Durendra and, and others involved at the center to really push forward uh, a conversation around, you know, and that's why I bring it back to the conversation we had with David and Marcel last week. And, and uh, even though Marcel and David uh, obviously are entrepreneurs and, and uh, you know, change makers in the province, that conversation was really about, okay, here we are, you know, in, in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, we've shut down the schools, we've shut down the economy. Um, now that we're starting to work our way out of this, um, you know, what's the plan for restarting things? And that's where the conversation with Lisa and, uh, and Durendra comes in. With Deep Change, they saw the opportunity to say, okay, so now we're starting to open things up. Um, what's that going to look like? And who's going to be part of the conversation, you know, around uh, what the economy looks like coming out of this and, you know, what society in general looks like coming out of this because things are going to restart, but they're going to look fo- different going right, forward. Right. Well, if it's one thing we love here at Huddle, it's, you know, thoughtful and engaging, innovative conversation around how we can make uh, our province and economy better. So this, I think this is going to be good. Uh, you'll really enjoy the conversation. I, I had a lot All of fun. All right. Well, let's get into it. All right. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Drendra. Hello, hey, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with you, Lisa. I'm, I'm curious to know about your, your personal circumstances at home. I know you're, you and Michael are both working at home right now. Well, yeah. Well, Michael and I, of course, have been working from home for over a decade. So, um, so... We're, we're good. What what we've decided, the three of us, is as long as at least one of us is not getting COVID frustrated, um, that's good. Uh, when all three of us are having a day where we're like, oh my God, then we're not pleasant to be around. So we're learning to step away from each other and um, make space. Because of course, we also have a really lovely teenager in our house as well. So uh, you you mean you and Michael have been working at home for a long time. And Mm -hmm. so Alexandra, how is she putting up with you guys okay? Uh, Alexandra is putting up with us uh, exceptionally well. Um, She is naturally, she's, you know, she's a little bored, like all of them. Uh, We were, of course, in self-isolation for two weeks because uh, we were in Ontario um, and that just ended. So she was really missing um, getting out and about. Um, uh, You know, when you're 14, uh, your friends are everything. And I think that's really, really a difficult part of uh, with schools being closed. Um, That lack of uh, person-to-person connection for her is really hard. And and you and Michael, you just don't cut it at times. Oh no, <laughs> absolutely not. And and I'm okay with that. I I am okay with that. Though though though, really, as you know, Mark, you you know Alex. She's pretty easygoing, and we actually um, enjoy each other's company. In fact, uh, 
last night. So on Tuesday night, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of films and I love TIFF. And I've um, one of the things I've been doing is um, following TIFF at Home, which is this wonderful series I recommend to everybody, um, in which Cameron Bailey, the, uh, the artistic director, interviews someone associated with a, a film that has played at TIFF. And then you can go online on Crave and watch it. And last night it was Guillermo del Toro and talking about Pan's Labyrinth. So the three of us sat down for that interview and then watched the film together. So that was a pretty good family outing in our living room. You're making me feel guilty with my my junky Netflix shows. <laughs> oh, I watched those too. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I have wondered, though, kind of because I know because at home we have the two kids and, and mm-hmm. they have each other. Now they, they fight a fair amount, um, but they also keep each other uh, company. They actually have constructed a fort uh, on the on the on the top floor of the house that they've been sleeping in now for four days. Yes. And did um, I not see on Facebook that they have taken the TV in there? They have a whole setup uh, with um, like uh, a Nintendo Switch, a computer monitor, a TV uh, they now have a hockey stick in there holding up the roof okay. um, and they've expanded the, the fort. So it's, it's a, it's a growing entity. It's taking over more and more of the upstairs now. <laughs> well, highly creative, highly creative. Well <laughs> yeah, done to both of them. But I, but I've wondered uh, with people in situations like you, where you have, like you have one child and that, that, yeah. that, uh, that uh, all the one child has is the parents. Yeah. I know all Alex has ever had is us. Uh, well, you would have to, you know, maybe that's a podcast uh, in the future about what uh, what are the kids up to. Um, so Alex took up sewing, so she's been sewing, and uh, she's been doing online courses uh, through Udemy and Coursera, um, and of course, like every other kid, she's on TikTok. The, yeah, the kids mercifully haven't found TikTok. Yes. She's tried to teach me a few of the dances. And and Durandra, what's your what's your situation at home? What are you? How are you coping through all this? Well, uh, obviously, uh, it's the first time I've ever stayed home this long. My wife is. Uh, what she's saying is that uh, clearly you're making up for all the constant travel. So I'm looking at it from a lot of, from that angle, having time to spend with. Uh, with, with family it's 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 simply great uh that uh, I, it feels like all the time i was traveling and this is my sort of uh, giving back and staying in uh daughter who's also a teenager uh you know spending time with her and my son celebrated his birthday during the lo- uh, you know uh, when we were all uh, at home but did it virtually with his friends and stuff like that so so it's uh, it has its challenges, but we are making the most of it. When you're talking about uh, uh, TikTok, I, I, I learned how to uh, do a, a dance. My son taught me. Clearly, he's a way better dancer, and and so we posted that on TikTok. And now people are asked, uh, started giving feedback that your son is a way better dancer. I said I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did get some comments that uh, we're looking for the next release of your video and hopefully you get better. <laughs> Not overly encouraging. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I continue to work from, uh, from home. Uh, it is a particularly a challenging time for several students. Uh, 
My wife works for Agriculture Canada, so she's also working from home. Uh, and given uh, the type of work uh, she, she has, to, she is required to, you know, uh, check into the labs and stuff on on a regular basis. Like, uh, uh, and and same with the university, there are some labs that are. And the university essential services have to be there, so there are people still at work that uh, that we we work and support uh, on a daily basis. So, so on a positive side, you know, we are spending a lot of time together. It's amazing. Some of my challenges, yes, uh, I am now beginning to lose against my son at chess. So my ego is really taking a real beating right now, right? And and then obviously the dance move stuff did not work out great in my favor. <laughs> Okay. As 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 part of the uh, as part of the social uh, the promotion of, of the podcast, I think we'll have to find these uh, TikTok uh, videos. Oh my god, <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. you now, Dorinder, you were telling me you also have um, you know family members that you're staying in touch with. Your your father is in India. Yeah. So, oh, well, my father, both my parents are, are in India, and what was interesting is that. Uh, uh, India is also in lockdown like we are, and my uh, dad had to go out to buy medication, uh, and uh, he walked out, and uh, the cops said, hey, you should not be out. He said, but I need to go and get my medicine. They said, hop in, and we will drive you to where you need to go, and we will drive you back. And so, you know, through this crisis, uh, I think uh, what is a, a huge telltale sign is that our humanity is intact. Uh, no matter where we are, the humanity and how people have pulled together is just simply uh, is is simply beautiful, and, and it's very uh, is very exciting to see that and that how caring people are. My brother's in Ottawa, and he had a little bit of scare uh, from work. Uh, and came back and uh, he was tested for COVID and things and he, he, he's totally fine and his family is totally fine. So, uh, uh, you know, there have been moments of scare, uh, but we're, we're all doing well and, and, and coping well and trying to stay positive and trying to stay connected. And it's challenging when, when people are distributed uh, across different parts of the world or even within Canada, broad, a big nation like Canada. It is challenging to stay in touch and interact, but thanks to technology, we can do. And from from speaking with your family in India, is is there is the way that is being handled there and their experience of it quite different from us here? I think uh, uh, the exper- uh, the, their experience is is quite different, but it's depending on which region of India you uh, you focus on. So my parents are. Uh, across the border from Nepal, and uh, in that part, uh, the the government has played a critical role and been quite active in in lockdowns and being very strict in terms of uh, in terms of uh, community engagement, what's possible, what's not, and then as a result, I think they've been able to really control the situation quite well. But there are parts of India that are have done even better and there are parts of india that are still struggling to try and uh, control the situation 
Well, let's uh, let's dive into the conversation on on deep change. Now, I know that um, you know obviously we want to set a lot of this conversation uh, in in terms of of you know the context of of the coronavirus and us kind of working our way through this and out of this. But I'm curious to know from from both of you just about uh, you know the roots the roots of deep change and that idea and that that center that you created at the university. Uh, well. Um... It comes out of uh, Durendra's relationship uh, with John McLaughlin, um, and Durendra can certainly pipe up and and talk a little bit about that. Uh, So, and of course, John and I have been longtime collaborators, it's going on now 16 years. Uh, So for those who don't know, John McLaughlin is the former president of the University of New Brunswick and has long had an interest in um, encouraging that active citizenship uh, that we need to um, develop new ideas, processes, workflows, products, and services to help us transition into uh, the knowledge age. So how do we um, get through this bumpy time that is being caused by massive technological change that is having um, all sorts of impacts on our economy, on our communities, and on our politics, and certainly also on our natural um, systems, um, whether they be the earth through environmental issues and climate change, or as we are seeing with COVID, biological change. Jarendra? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, going into firstly building this relationship with John McLaughlin, uh, John McLaughlin and I have uh, worked uh, uh, together for, since I came uh, to uh, UNB in, in New Brunswick in 2009. Uh, his passion for community, his passion for uh, raising the bar in terms of creating value for everyone is absolutely infectious. Uh, and what it did in that conversation was, as I, I, I met him and spent more time and I worked with him and I taught with him and we focused on building the center, the focus is how do we have an inclusive conversation that brings, uh, brings different people to become part of the conversation, to create a greater value for for everyone. And so that when change happens, it's an inclusive change. And and that is is what's very powerful about the center is that it's not primarily focused on just one element. How do we have parallel conversations that are inclusive about society and community and begin to... uh, find a path that can make us uh, be, while we are respectful of our history and culture, but find a path that is inclusive and makes us stronger as we move forward. And and through this crisis, it's become more obvious that this is, is very important. And if anything, it needs to, uh, the things need to speed up in that direction so that we can find uh, better solutions, integrated solutions, How do, and that can only happen when we have inclusive conversations with all parts of the community uh, that are uh, vulnerable, that are uh, fragile, 
that are quite well off and 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 you know, people in power how do we have that all integrated in in the conversation is exactly what the center is all about right and the three of us along with Susan Montague who is the fourth co-founder we started talking about this god oh, well over a year ago um and we were just you know going along at a nice easy pace we thought okay so we'll we'll publish a couple of papers we'll tr- uh perhaps bring some people together start having those conversations and even if you go on the webpage um you'll see that the first paper was published in October and in fact uh that's when we started talking about it um and then covid happened and it became very obvious as Durendra has said that um we need to ensure that this is not an either or conversation, that this is about and, and, that as we are figuring out the immediacy of a recovery, uh, that we at the same time are considering how we can take this pandemic-induced pause and really take a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the underlying issues that were there before COVID, that COVID has laid bare on some of those issues, and we can actually start to um, develop some new ways of thinking and doing um, that leave us stronger when we emerge from all of this. Now, Lisa, take me back a little bit to because you, you I mean you wrote that that first uh, piece back in in October uh, mm-hmm. that you published on the site. And but take me back in terms of how you frame this as a story. You talk about the roots of some of the issues that we're facing were there for us before the pandemic. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, New Brunswick has been um, having a very similar conversation with itself for uh, the last 20 years. And, And probably before that, I frame it as 20 years because that's how long I've been here writing and analyzing New Brunswick, right? Where I, I arrived here in 1997. And so, and you, you know this, Mark, as journalists, we have covered the same issues over and over again, whether it's education reform, uh, economic development, regional inequities, um, indigenous um, restitution, land management, long-term care, healthcare. There, we, we keep having the same conversations over and over. And, um, and that has always frustrated and interest me in equal measure. So I have spent a lot of my time thinking about how do we break open that pattern and reset it. So that is that is essentially what the center is is hoping to do. Um, this initiative is about bringing those different voices into the conversation that Durender was talking about and really reaching deep into um, our grassroots community movements and existing networks that are uh, busily working away, doing really interesting things at a very local level and connecting them together. So A, all these wonderful groups know they're not working alone, that there are others who share similar sentiments, even though they might be working on different issues, but also to hear all those different perspectives um, so that we can figure out that different way. And I think that's um, 
That's really important. Oftentimes when we're developing policy, it's presented as either or, or I'll take a little bit of that, I'll take a little bit of that, and I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll come up with this compromise. Um, and in the end, we, you know, we often talk about needs versus wants and, and us versus them and winners and losers. And in effect, what we actually need to do is design something completely different and completely new that has, that can be recognized that each person, each, each element recognizes a piece of them within it. And that's about finding that shared purpose um, within all of our varying self-interests. And I have long argued, and I think COVID is offering us this really interesting opportunity. I've long argued that New Brunswick is uniquely placed in North America to be able to lead if we actually put our minds to it, because we have this very tightly knit community. We don't have the um, extremism that we see elsewhere in North America. And we're small, which means we can move quickly and we have moved quickly in the past on various different things. What What does deep change mean? Well, so deep change is um, a term that John came up with oof, God, 16 years ago. Um, and the best way I can describe it is think of um, levels of, think of it as there are probably five major levels of change. So the first level is just that superficial political change that we often hear during elections. Fine. The second is sort of those process improvements that anybody who works in a large corporation or even a small one is familiar with, um, whether it's lean manufacturing or Kaizen or any of those that are about making um, improvements to efficiencies um, within an organization. So incremental change. Um, Then the third level down is that disruptive change that we are seeing that technology is bringing, right? So that's the arrival of um, electric vehicles, the internet, all those things that when they show up on the scene, actually cause great change and disruption to existing sectors. Deep change is one level below that because those that disruptive change is doing more than changing the economy it's actually having an impact on our values and uh, shared cultures, that our values are shifting. And so all of these political um, debates and culture wars that we've been listening to are examples of that shift. So, you know, so if we take climate change as an example of a values shift. So we've been talking about the environment for decades. But what we're starting to see is that a concern for the environment, and particularly climate, has become a core value for regular for more regular citizens. It's not a nice add-on that after we've done all these other things, yes, it'd be lovely if we cleaned up the air. It's now become a core value, and people look for it in uh, their politicians, and they're looking for it in the brands they buy, and they're looking for it in how they run their lives. So there's a growing number of people who now think like that. That's a values shift. 
And when our values shift, then everything shifts. So that is deep change. In terms of the, that, that conversation, I'm really curious to see how the pandemic will shift this conversation around oil in particular, because yeah. you have that value shift happening at the same time as you have an oil crisis in part precipitated by the pandemic. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are competing values there, right? The pandemic is also likely going to accelerate that values shift and the values conflict then around biological change, right? And um, where we place the importance of population health. We, you know, it could be argued that population health, which has always been an aspirational thing, um, has always um, been important, but never the number one priority. Certainly Canadians uh, love public health care and want to do good on all those things, but all those preventative measures that, you know, you and I have written about for decades never were the priority budget item, right? To prevent whatever's going to happen. So look at COVID and what it revealed about um, these advanced societies' ability to um, prepare and plan for bad things, um, right? So I think COVID is going to make us rethink the uh, supply chains. It's going to make us rethink um, certainly special care homes and how we care for uh, senior citizens. It's going to make us rethink all those things. And those are value propositions. In, in that context, I mean, the conversations, and this is a, a question for, for both you, Lisa, and, and you as well, Jorendra, like we've had kind of parallel conversations going on around economic development in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. We've had great energy debates around natural gas extraction and development. We've had great debates around building pipelines. Uh, at the same time, we've seen, you know, an innovation economy develop. And and, and obviously, we spoke with um, Marcel and, and, and David last week about, uh, you know, about primarily about the papers that they they had written that we had published about, you know, reopening the economy. But those two men obviously were also at the center of, you know, great innovation economy success stories around, you know, Radiant 6 and Salesforce. And it, it talked to me a little bit about how you see the economy developing, you know, with, you know, both of those kinds of stories running in parallel now. We have an energy story, but we also have an ongoing innovation story. So... From my perspective, a lot of the the conversations and uh, that have been brought up. Firstly, we have to acknowledge that uh, it has in crisis. Do we begin to understand how fragile our overall system is? So this uh, this whole element about supply chain, it became very very obvious how. We are so interdependent and intertwined from a, uh, a global perspective. Uh, so, and it also pointed out that uh, how some people are prepared and some people were able to act quickly and address concerns, while 
Others were simply waiting for someone else to do something. Uh, uh, from a from an energy perspective, I think our critical reason that we have struggled in so many fronts for such a long time is that we have we are not having a conversation uh, with all stakeholders involved, and as a result, there's a huge mistrust and lack of, uh, you want to say, trust or respect between different uh, stakeholders. As a result, it as a result, it becomes very difficult for us to move the agenda forward. So when we look at how fragile things are and how these uh, different uh, programs and things that have been rolling out, it clearly demonstrated to to, to people that uh, that look there isn't and there hasn't been a plan that that would take into consideration a global crisis or a national crisis like this. So how do we come out of this? Uh, a stronger becomes a, a core thing. So you know, uh, you recently did a story on how uh, while I'm a prof at the university, I also have uh, and the founder of this uh, center, but also I, I have a startup that that spent a lot of time with about hundreds of people from the community uh, that volunteered their time to develop a platform that does contact tracing, uh, symptom trace, uh, tracing, all of those. But it was all community-based. So I think there is a huge opportunity for us to reflect and think about what is the new way forward? What are the new values that we can create? What can we do coming out of this, build a more integrated uh, plan for the nation, for the region? And then how do we begin to uh, do things that, that are respectful? Because a lot of the programs have not really, uh, I think from the conversations, I think if you walk down the street, the most vulnerable are people on the streets. The most vulnerable are sex workers. The most vulnerable are from a university angle are what are we doing for students? What are we doing particularly for uh, international students? What are we doing for refugees or new immigrants? I think, uh, you know, that's just, that's just uh, simply asking those questions and it's, it demonstrates that uh, we were never prepared for anything like this. And, uh, and, and now looking at it and saying, well, okay, we have learned a lesson. How do we come out and focus on, on a new model, new way of doing these things? And how can the Center for Deep Change be instrumental in leading that conversation that is inclusive of all these dimensions. And, you know, the, Lisa already brought up that element. You know, how are we going to engage the indigenous community and all of those people into this conversation becomes critical. So I think uh, while there, there, there are a lot of good things that are happening, people have stepped up, people have done a lot of heroic things, obviously, uh, the medical staff and frontline workers, they've done incredible things, uh, but it has exposed us to a lot of weaknesses in our system. And how do we reflect and begin to bridge those things? 
so a lot of a lot of things for us to uh, think about and act about on and when you talk about the overall center if you begin to fundamentally look at the cultural shift at the core and lisa talked about this is how do we create unique value and then how do you build infrastructure around it to support that infrastructure around this how do you build institutions around the changes that are happening to support the cultural change and then how what does a new economy look like as we move this agenda forward and to add to what Dorinda is saying when we talk about the new economy often in Often when we talk, when generally people are talking about a new economy, they're talking about the economy that is being forged by technological innovation. And what we're talking about is beyond that. The technological uh, change that is occurring is forcing the shift, but that alone is not going to create a sustainable economy that provides greater wealth equity that alone can't do it nor do we want it to want it to do it we need when we talk about a new economy we're talking about for instance business model different business models that we have yet to um understand or that have yet given the opportunity to emerge um because all of the um, transformation that we have seen, all of that disruptive technology that is going on has all been predicated and based on an economic model that we have been running for, you know, centuries. Um, So that is fine, but we have to look at a different way because the big change that occurred in the technology that was introduced was the was the arrival of networks we are now fully networked and and when we talk about networking it means that information products and everything are flowing equally in multiple directions that is such a fundamental change to how we live and think and interact that we have not fully comprehended what that has done to us. So how, when we've made that fundamental change from going to basically one power structure sending out to another and and not much coming back from that, that more hierarchical top-down approach that has been existed for like centuries, we have now begun to flatten that to allow, look, Mark, look at this podcast. You wouldn't have been able to afford to do this 20 years ago. Now everybody and their dog can make a podcast, though this one is much better, much better. <laughs> as, I, as I told Drender beforehand, this this is costing us 70 bucks, the cost of his microphone. Exactly. So, so. We have not fully comprehended what that means. Certainly, we haven't comprehended it in the political space because now it, there's a cacophony of voices and they're all, the, the majority, or the, at least the loudest ones are really angry and we haven't figured out how to work around that. So that new economy is a bunch of stuff that we haven't even begun to consider. 
So it like Lisa and Drender, it feel like it feels to me like you know I mean I may be stating the obvious here, but the conversation we seem to be having, and it's both a social conversation, it's also an economic one, is that I mean this is not just true of this province. Like we we but in this province, you know, we relied on 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 government. Um, we've relied on a lot of big economic players to steer conversations, and it sounds like we're talking about something that's that's more participatory here. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No. And and it's it's changing that overall model. And exactly what you're saying is that, you know, we have this. Uh, it's not saying that the current players step out. It's it's how do you create a platform for a deeper conversation, a meaningful conversation, an inclusive conversation, and are open to new models. Uh, of engagement and open to new models of experimentation and be at the same time, you have enough trust and respect within the community that you will know that through this journey, that there will be many uh, points that will happen that you will reflect and say, Oh, that was a mistake. That didn't, that didn't work out. It doesn't matter. You build on all of that to come out stronger at the other end. And you can only come out stronger at the other end is that if you have that ability to be tr- trusting and caring and there is this sense of responsibility because you know everyone's moving towards a model that creates uh, that creates opportunities for all players. So, so the analogy I would use is um, we've read and heard an awful lot about big data, data analytics, AI, 5G, all this technology. And and at the crux of all of those new innovations is that there's so much uh, data being created and we are now building machines that can process this data really, really fast and provide us with really interesting insights, right? Like that's all this, all these metrics we read about. So I want to do that. Durendra and I and the center, we are passionate about doing that with people. So um, right now, we still look to, as I call the boldface names, to help define and frame up conversations. Um, we, Durendra and I are sitting here today having this conversation with you, Mark, because we're known entities, because you know us, others know us. We have built up those reputations to have this conversation. My dream with the center is that I, rather than being the person who is on these calls, is creating the space to bring other voices into that conversation and to amplify their voices, to make space for them. Because that is key to finding our new ways forward is to make space on the platforms we have. I loved um, uh, Rihanna uh, was awarded something in the last few months. And when she got up on stage to thank everyone for giving her the award, she actually looked out into that audience of of highly wealthy, privileged, connected people and said, thank you, but our job is far from over. 
All of you who sit in positions of power and privilege and access have a responsibility to lift others up and out with you who do not have access like you do. And I truly do believe that that is our role, that we need to lift up and out those people who live here in New Brunswick, who have excellent ideas, who are on the ground trying to bring change, but don't have access to these megaphones that people like Dorinda and I do. Yeah. And, and, and you know, then, then the, the question around, uh, you know, like, the, why is it at the university? I think universities continue to hold uh, a, a, a position in our society where there is trust. People still continue to believe in universities as a place where knowledge is being shared. There have been the biggest criticisms you have about universities is, are they, why are they not open? Why are they not being uh, uh, holding these conversations? And guess what the center is exactly doing? It's doing exactly what, uh, uh, what some of the criticisms of the institutions have been, is to be more open, be more porous, be more inclusive, be a place where people feel that they can find themselves and be part of that conversation and feel safe doing that. Right. And, you know, and you look at it from that angle, you know, many times, you know, how I ended up in New Brunswick was when Nortel Networks uh, collapsed in 2009, it went bankrupt. And, and, you know, now guess what the whole conversation is in Canada of, I mean, before COVID was 5G. At that time, Nortel was a leader in wireless telecom and communication. So we are reflecting back and see, saying, Oh, I wish things had gone were different. I wish we had done something differently. What what we're trying to say is how do you look at things now with a longer horizon rather than what are you going to do in three months, six months? How do we begin to put those strong building blocks in place right now that uh, that the next generation and the generation after will look at us and say they put the building blocks for us to take us to a stronger place as a community, as a region, as a nation. So on on that line, Dorinda, a lot of the the conversations that we have here, and it wouldn't be just here in New Brunswick, it'd be elsewhere. But we do we talk a lot about you know missteps and 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 missed opportunities. Um, Sitting where we are now, you know, hopefully coming out of the coronavirus, um, what opportunities do lie ahead of us? So, so I think uh, some of the elements we've already brought up, right? How do we figure out a new model for supply chain, right? How do we find out what the center can do is how can we have an inclusive and a respectful conversation, just because someone is not speaking does not mean that they have nothing to say. So creating that opportunity for others to rise is, is vital and is critical. And because they might not have the most, the voice that is uh, well articulated, but let's, let's help them. Let's all work together to find that 
that opportunity that people feel safe and comfortable to have those conversations. And I think media becomes an integral and a critical part of all of that. And other, uh, uh, other institutions have a vital role to play. Then you look at, you know, we talked about the supply chain. Then you look at technology as, as an enabler for, no one is saying don't focus on technology, but technology becomes an enabler for the next new model of doing things. New models for reaching out and connecting with the so-called network that, uh, that Lisa had brought up earlier to build that integrative society that no longer needs to be felt that they are they're isolated. We can easily bring them to get, together to have this these conversations, like we are having right now. So, so they are models that we can begin to experiment. They are models that what what happens if there is another crisis? What do we do about simple things? Whether it's medication, whether it's masks, whether it's ventilators. What do we begin to do? It cannot be a. There are some things we need to focus on as a nation-building activity, and there are certain things we need to look at. What can we do to act and react in in a region, and we can come together quickly. Not that in the model that we right now have is that this person needs to become a hero or that person needs to become a hero. No. How do we build a model? that all these important stakeholders and important influential people and people with resources come together to act, to protect and work in a meaningful way to, in, to support the most vulnerable people in our society. Now, I know, Lisa, you, you had raised an example of this in, in your paper, but um, as I hear you speak, Dorinder, it makes me think um, about how, how we translate that sort of participatory conversation into economic opportunity and economic development, however, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know Lisa, you had you had in the in the paper you published in October had made some comparisons to how you know green energy opportunities could evolve and develop in the province. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that gets to be an infrastructure uh, conversation and uh, institutional. And an institutional conversation. It's about the rules that we put in place and then the pathways um, that we enable to happen. Um, so, like, yeah, so if we use energy as an example, um, we are currently, you know, so, so that uh, renewable green, whatever you want to call the, the non fossil fuel energy world, um, is a side conversation. Um, but uh, using the network as an example, um, just just take electricity um, to consider. Um, so I look at my electrical bill uh, every month, and I'm like, oh, I hate that bill. And I said to Michael, you know what? If the minute we can afford to put solar panels on top of this house, we're doing it because. And it's. It, am I concerned about the environment? Yes. I'm also concerned about my bank account. And what? Uh, the distributed network model is doing in electricity is is it is enabling all of us to produce our own energy and sell it back onto the grid 
at some point in time. So imagine if we're thinking about the future of NB Power and we're having this conversation right now about do we retrofit Mac to Quack? How, what do we do about generation? What conversation isn't coming into play at all is what if we actually accelerated um, residential consumers' ability to produce and store their own energy and then sell it back onto the grid. So rather than having one great big huge generator, we actually have a distributed network of, of small generators selling stuff back onto the grid. This is not an either or conversation. We're still going to need large generators, but that there is an opportunity to have that conversation as well and to accelerate that process. So when we think about the finite amount of funding that is available and where investments can go, why don't we have that conversation and think about that? Because the world is moving in that direction to this back and forth. So much the same way you can go on Kijiji or on Facebook um, Marketplace and sell your stuff to someone else who thinks it's awesome. So too, um, can we create electrical market that does the same thing? So we see Elon Musk and others developing batteries to store power. So the most important conversation, in my opinion, on when it comes to energy is actually um, storage. And once we figure out storage and once we figure out how to price it at a point that residential consumers will purchase it, that is going to completely disrupt electrical utilities because I'm not going to need to buy from NB Power anymore but I might be able to sell to them. So what the heck is that going to do? We could be having this type of conversation on just about any industrial sector. What is 3D printing going to do to shipping? I, you and I have both read stories about 3D printers that build houses. <laughs> okay, interesting. So could I, could I one day have a, could there be a community 3D printer that prints out my new washing machine? I don't know. Or build a house. <laughs> or build a house or construct my car. So what the heck is that going to do to shipping? What's that going to do to manufacturing centers? What's that going to do to Amazon distribution centers? We're moving so quickly towards all these different things. But the thing is, is we don't know when any of these are going to arrive or in what form that change is going to come. So we need to be really thinking about those deeper pieces of infrastructure and the rules and regulations that we put in place for our economy to enable us to be ready when one of them actually becomes the thing, right? It's like uh, it's like Zoom meetings, right? Three months ago, Zoom meetings was being used by a bunch of people. Now it's being used by everybody and its cyber uh, security flaws have been made known, known to all. All of a sudden, Zoom became the thing. No one could have predicted six months ago Zoom was going to be the thing. But now it is. So think about that on a much larger scale, much like we once did about the internet, like we once did about smartphones. It's coming. All that change is coming. And it's coming for the parts of our economy and our society that we 
take for granted and that we don't think about as technology. It's coming for resource extraction. It's coming for healthcare. It's certainly coming for education. So what are we doing? And what infrastructure are we putting in place to enable its arrival? Well, and and the place New Brunswick has to play, I mean, you saw uh, where we are given uh, the current crisis, you know, we, we have managed it well. And and given that situation, I think it it does demonstrate that we do have a sense of community that understands and appreciates. And this can be the ideal grounds to trial and tra- uh, try out uh, new new models, try and test new innovative ideas, try and test new ways and new uh, new models and new things to test because it is such a brilliant place to do things and and why not here and, and as a result all those models that lisa has brought up i think we should be leading all those spaces and, and we can and and we have the ability and we can and we're you un- and i will argue that New Brunswick is uniquely positioned to lead. Like, yay us! For the very reasons that New Brunswick has been criticized and um, has lagged behind are the reasons that we're emerging from COVID faster than everybody else, and which also then put us in a place where we can move. And that is, we don't have one centralized urban center. That has helped us immensely with COVID. Um, It also means that um, one place in New Brunswick isn't sucking everything up, right? It actually remains spread out around here. We have a tightly, tightly knit community, right? And it's not six degrees of separation in the Maritimes. It's like one and a half, (laughs) right? That tight knit uh, sense of community, I will argue, is part of why COVID didn't come to New Brunswick like it came everywhere else because when we were told to go home, New Brunswickers went home and they stayed home because they know so many people in their communities. It's their families, it's their friends, and they wanted to keep everybody safe. They have a great, strong sense of social capital and trust and love for each other that doesn't exist in larger centers because there's just so many more people. Those two things, are part of why we can lead. And it just means that we need to start by reframing how we see ourselves, that we actually can go out and we can lead and um, the rest of the world will follow. Well, that's actually a perfect place to end the conversation. Not that I want to. So I, I thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this. And I have a feeling that uh, uh, I said this to Marcel and David last week that I was bringing them back for a part two. And I have a feeling I'm, I'm also bringing the two of you back for part two. I'd <laughs> love to. Always. So maybe we could put the, the five of us on, on the same one at the same time. There we go. There we go. Yeah. I, I interact maybe with them in the middle on of a park. basis. Yes. Any, any parting thoughts or should I let you go? Well, like I think uh, we both concluded with the same sort of fact that, uh, uh, you know, New Brunswick uh, can 
and should be a leader emerging out of this in so many forms. And we should be forming, looking at coming out with new models and new policies and new ways to do things and new ways to engage people. And we we should be very proud of what we've achieved. And that should, moving forward, be the model that we come together and produce new things together and lead. It is a golden opportunity. It is our golden moment in a dark time. And crises often do this. And um, we need to travel both paths. We need to ease the suffering and hardship that COVID has caused for so many people. Absolutely, job number one. But at the same time, a parallel path must begin that takes that has a longer view. Let's deal with the present and let's chart the future. And at some point, these two paths will merge. Well, thanks so much, Lisa and Dorendra. I really, really enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you. And we'll pick this up again soon. You've been listening to Huddle Home Office and my conversation with Lisa Rablick and Dorendra Shukla. Thank you very much, guys, for joining us on this episode of Home Office. And uh, if you want to follow the conversation at the Center for Deep Change, you can uh, check out their website. It's medium.com slash deep dash change. That's medium.com slash deep dash change. And uh, Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can, we're very excited about this, you can now find Huddle Home Office on iTunes and Spotify. Just search Huddle Home Office. And please uh, go to our website, uh, huddle.today. That's www.huddle.today. And uh, keep up to date on the latest business news around the Maritimes. And sign up for our newsletter. Every morning, you'll get an email that highlights all of the articles that we published that day on uh, events and issues around economic development and business in the Maritimes. And again, thank you very much for listening to Huddle Home Office, and we will talk to you next week.